Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms in all of the Psalter. In fact, there's only two psalms that are shorter than this. When you, If you count up the original uh, Hebrew word count of the psalms, I believe there's only two that are shorter than this. Psalm 117 is the shortest in all the Bible, and then Psalm 134 is also three verses, but um, it's about 20 words shorter than this one. So it's one of the shortest psalms in, in the Psalter. Obviously, that's one of the shortest chapters in all of the Bible. And while it is a short psalm, you might call it a little psalm, it's a psalm that has a very big message. In fact, Charles Spurgeon once said of this psalm, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And I think that's very true. It's a psalm that's quite simple to read. It only takes a few seconds, and yet it addresses concepts that are not always easy to practice and really addresses concepts that I think take a lifetime of practice to really accomplish. So let's go ahead and just read this psalm together. Psalm 131, the heading uh, in the scripture is A Song of Ascents of David. The psalm says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So this psalm is in a part of uh, a section of psalms from chapter from Psalm 120 through 134 that are all uh, called Psalms of Ascent. It's a special category of the psalms. There's different ideas about what these psalms, uh, what the ascent was. Some believe it was the Levites as they ascended the stairs, uh, the steps of the temple. More commonly, commentators believe these are psalms that were collected over time and they became kind of the songbook that people would sing through and pray through as they made their travels to the yearly festivals, as they would travel up to Jerusalem, these would be psalms that they would think about and that they would sing and that they would pray through together, making that ascent to Jerusalem. And so either way, whether it's something that was done at temple worship or whether it was done as people traveled to Jerusalem to worship, one thing that does seem clear is that the psalms of ascent were psalms, they were songs that were especially meant to help people think about and get in the right frame of mind to approach God and to worship God. And then, of course, from there to live before God. And so some of them are very short, uh, but they have some wonderful concepts about the attitudes that we should have. Now, this particular psalm is ascribed to David. Uh, There's many commentators will talk about whether of David means it was about David or just in the Davidic line or written by David. I prefer to just take it for what it says and believe that this is a psalm written by David. Uh, It's a psalm that is probably one that he considered personally, but also one that as a king became kind of a royal representative of the people. And as we'll see looking at the psalm, it is one that is both individualistic, but also communal. And it's, it's too generic to pinpoint when this was in David's life that he would have written it. Some of the Psalms tell us specifically the occasion, like after being rebuked by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, or when his son Absalom was uh, chasing him. But this one gives us no such background information, so we really don't know when David wrote this. But the nature of this prayer, and I think it does fit kind of with a a prayer, uh, it became a fit psalm for the Ascent Psalms, as it's one that instructs God's people concerning the right attitudes in which to approach the Lord. Now, it 
it's kind of easy to outline this psalm because I think each of the three verses covers a main topic or a main idea. And this is where we see kind of the, the bigness of this little psalm because the topics it addresses, again, are topics that are understandable, easy enough to understand, but they are not always the easiest to apply. The first verse covers humility. It talks about the need for and the choice to live a humble lifestyle, both as we will see before men and especially before God. The second verse then teaches us about contentment of all the things in life that are so hard for us to master, especially in our day and in our age. Perhaps one of them is contentment. We Almost all of us are plagued with that desire for more, whether it's more time off work, more money from work, more this, more that. If I just had this, if I could just get here, then that would be the answer. How many of us don't have a calm and quiet soul simply because of discontent? And so the second verse speaks of contentment. And then the third verse teaches us of hope or of trust. Now, again... We read through that psalm, you can read through that psalm in a matter of seconds. And yet when you think about the ideas of humility and contentment and hope, again, it's pretty clear that this psalm, as Charles Spurgeon said, is one of the shortest to read and one of the longest to learn. Because I think learning humility and contentment and hope and practicing humility and contentment and hope faithfully is truly a lifelong goal and a lifelong process that we must grow in. But let's just take a look at these uh, three verses. Verse 1, again, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In this first verse, David uh, describes humility by saying three things that he does not do. His heart is not lifted, his eyes are not raised too high, and he is not too occupied with things that are too great or too marvelous for himself to consider. So let's consider this. And by the way, I, I do want to say just in a little bit of a background, um, David's, it, it might seem strange. This is one of those Psalms that it almost seems ironic because it begins speaking about humility. And you might say, well, how humble is it of a person to say, I am not arrogant. I mean, that seems to almost be an arrogant statement to make a positive claim about how one is not proud or haughty or arrogant. But I think if we give David the, the, his due credit, this is probably not David, especially as a young man, just extolling his virtue, especially when you look at the psalm right before this. And I do think Psalm 130 and 131 are connected in more than just that they are both psalms of ascent. Uh, psalm 130 is another one that I've been looking at and want to teach on before too long. Uh, and it's one that you'll probably recognize if you go back and read it. Uh, one of our songbooks has a song that's written off of it. That's where you find one of the, those great lines, I will wait upon the Lord. And that psalm is also kind of a penitential psalm. You can tell that and that psalm is the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry for you. And he's waiting for the answer of the Lord. And then it goes from that psalm into this psalm of David, and as we're going to see by the end, David's explaining a little bit of how waiting on the Lord looks. 
And so David probably learned this lesson. He certainly learned it from the word of God. He learned it probably from being taught. He learned it through practice. And I think David is saying that this is what he has learned. This is how he has learned to wait upon the Lord and to find hope in the Lord. This is how he can encourage Israel to place their trust in the Lord is he has chosen the path of humility instead of arrogance. And as a king, this was especially important for him. He had chosen the path of contentment as opposed to the path of empire building and always seeking more. And so David is speaking perhaps from his experience and showing why this is the most beneficial path. So again, he he describes this uh, as far as the humility in three negative statements. And the first two kind of go together. The heart is not lifted up and the eyes are not raised too high. When you think of the heart, uh, we typically think of that as maybe just the emotions. When we talk about something hurts our heart or our heart is made glad, we're speaking primarily about emotions. And that was true in a Hebrew language as well or to the Hebrews, but it had a bit bigger meaning than that too. It wasn't just emotional things. It was where the motives came from. It was considered kind of the seat, uh, the throne of a person, their, their real personhood. And so the heart is a big thing and it's not just a matter of emotions, but it was the inner man as we would kind of think of it as well something that's inside and so when David speaks of a heart his heart and his eyes he is kind of referring poetically to both the inner and the outer man and I think when it comes to humility that's an important thing to remember humility must be something that is true both inwardly and outwardly most of us will put forth at least some effort to outwardly appear humble Uh, Nobody likes the braggart. Nobody likes the person who's just always telling how good they are. Sometimes we see this in athletics. You see this person that's just incredibly obnoxious with how arrogant they are and how much they brag about their talent. And nobody likes that type of person. And so most of us try and at least stay away from that to a degree. And we can at least put on a show of outward humility. Now, Our our humility needs to be visible. People need to be able to see that we are humble, but it needs to be a genuine humility. And we need to have a heart that is humble. I can put on an act of humility, but if my heart is lifted up, whatever I may do externally, I'm still not humble. I'm still not going to treat my fellow man the way I ought to. I'm still not going to worship God the way I ought to unless both the inner and the outer man are truly taught by humility. So to lift the heart is a phrase that would refer to being haughty or proud. To raise the eyes is a concept that would be similar to uh, what we might call looking down your nose at someone. A slightly different way of phrasing that idea. We've all heard that term and we don't like it when people do that to us. But so both of these concepts relate really to our view of self and then our view of self and relation to others. How do we consider ourselves? How do we consider others? Often, David used, uh, David made a comment, I think, in his short talk, you know, think of driving. We're all the perfect driver. As he said, the people that are driving too fast, the people that pass us are maniacs, the people that we're passing are just way too slow, but we're on the right speed. 
Well, that's true in so much of our lives. People, we look at people that are wealthier than us and we think they're just greedy people. We look at people that are in a, a lower economic class than us and we look down on them or we judge them or we think they're lazy or they're not good enough. That's, that's how so many people are. There's always the people ahead they're envious of, the people below they look down on. How do we truly look at other people? And why do we look at other people the way that we do? How do we esteem ourselves? How do we hold ourselves accountable? Have we lifted up our hearts to esteem ourselves as higher than we should? Do we look down our nose at other people? And why is it that we often do this? Typically, one of the most common reasons that people tend to look down on others has nothing, has nothing more to do than just physical things, riches, power, education, circumstances, talent, all of these things are reasons that people have to let their hearts be lifted and then to look down upon their fellow man. Proverbs 18 verse 11 and 12 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. I don't think that verse 11 and 12 there are meant to be completely opposite or just separated ideas. This idea of a rich man's wealth being his strength, being his high wall, is immediately followed with the idea of the destruction of the proud and the haughty. Why would someone, why are many people proud and haughty today? Because of their wealth. That's one of the dangers of wealth. And it's not that you can't be wealthy and be a Christian, but the Bible is abundantly clear that with more wealth comes even more danger. And just one of the dangers is the arrogance and the pride and the self-reliance that comes with wealth. Most of us have probably experienced it. Have you ever felt like someone who was richer than you looked down on you simply because you weren't quite in their economic class? We've all felt that, I'm sure. It doesn't feel good. And it's something that we should never do. Uh, there's many other things. It could be our education. It could be our talent. It could be our position. It could be so many things. And it's so silly when you step back and think about how fleeting and temporal the things are that often make us so proud. We think we're better because we have more money. What happens when we lose all that money? We think we're better because we're talented. What happens when we grow old and a bunch of younger people come up that are more talented than we are? We think we're better uh, because of looks until we get old. We, we think we're better for all these things that are fleeting and passing. It's the danger of carnality. Um, when our heart rises in an evil way, there's no end to where we might go. There's, there's so much danger that can take place. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, this is a verse that's speaking about King Uzziah. Now, King Uzziah, if you go and read about him, for the most part, he had been a very good king. He had been a righteous king. But listen to this. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. King Uzziah had been a good man. He'd been a righteous man. He was a blessed man. But then as his strength grew and grew, and his strength had grown because God allowed it to grow and because God gave him victory and because God gave him peace, and then what did he do? He began to think it was his strength and his might. And he became proud and he became presumptuous, as we're going to see is really what is addressed in the next line. 
so much so that he openly rebelled against God's law. He was not allowed to go and burn incense on the altar of incense. He was the king, but he was not the priest. And when he did, he ended up being struck with leprosy and separated from his family and his kingdom and had to live in seclusion the rest of his days because of his pride. When we are arrogant and when we are haughty, we usurp, as it were, God's place because he is the one who is truly high and lifted up. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. As one of the dangers of arrogance. One of the dangers is people won't like you. People get tired of the arrogant and the proud people. But by far the greater fear is the anger that God feels towards those who are haughty and arrogant. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, the Lord says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is high. God is lifted up. God is above all of the heavens. And he belongs there. We do not. We are not high. We are not lifted up except by God. And so when we begin to view ourselves higher than we ought to, we run into dangerous problems. Psalm 101 verse 5, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 6 verse 16 through 17, a list of seven things that the Lord hates. The very first in that list is haughty eyes. Haughtiness, arrogance, pride, is such a dangerous thing. It will cause us to mistreat our fellow man and it will cause us to lose favor with God and incur his wrath. And part of that is because God does not like it when we mistreat other people, but also because he is angered when our haughtiness and our arrogance begin to presume against him. And that's really what this third knot is about. The first two really have a view towards people, whereas this second this or this third that's not occupied with things too great and marvelous have to do more with our attitude towards God. Lifted hearts and eyes have to do with how we view people. But this idea of great and marvelous, those are words that may just seem normal to us, but the words that are used, especially that word marvelous, in the Hebrew, that, that Hebrew word that's translated marvelous almost always has to do with the powerful, miraculous, marvelous works of God. It speaks of things that God does and only God can do. And thus this phrase refers in some way to meddling in things beyond us or in trying to accomplish for ourselves what only God can do. So it is not only arrogant, but presumptuous. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 reminds God's people, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Now, this is not to say that we should never engage in deep Bible study. This is not to say that it's entirely wrong to have questions and to wonder about the unseen things. All of us have those feelings, have those thoughts. But we cannot take those things too far. And we certainly can never take the realm of supposition and things that we simply do not know 
and live our life by those things. So many people live their lives and the authority for their morality, for their doctrine, for their, their worship is based upon what the Bible does not say and what they cannot see. And yet that is presumptuous arrogance to think that we have the wisdom to go outside of God's word or to ignore God's word and to come up with our methods and our ways of living, of worshiping, of being saved. That is presumption and arrogance in the highest form. When God has spoken and revealed his will and his pattern and his plan. It is up to us to simply humble ourselves before his word and obey it, to keep the words of his law. Humility obeys God's revealed word. Arrogance goes beyond it or rejects it. A humble attitude was thus always prescribed for Israel's kings. In fact, interestingly, this was clearly something God knew that Israel's kings would struggle with, and they would need to be reminded of the importance of humility. So in Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, which, by the way, this is written hundreds of years before Saul would even become the first king of Israel. In preparation for the kingdom that would one day come, God said this, when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." There would always be the temptation for kings, as Isaiah fell prey to, to think that their kingdom was just that, their kingdom, instead of God's kingdom. Humility, however, would keep a king from becoming oppressive, and it would keep him from trusting himself instead of God. But far too often, as you read through the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and First and 2 Chronicles, we see over and over again how Israel's kings too often followed their own plans instead of trusting in God, turning to earthly allies instead of trusting in God. The kingdom became their kingdom instead of God's kingdom, and thus it fell. Now, as we think about that, what's that have to do with us? Well, what about the kingdom today? Do we do the same thing with the church? Do we, can we say we humbly submit to God's ways, we obediently follow his ways, or do we try and take things into our own hands? Do we do our work simply and faithfully and look to God for the increase, or do we seek to build the church as we see fit? Do we seek to grow the church in the way that we see fit, or do we seek the glory for the success of the church that only belongs to God? One man that I read had this to say. He said, time and time again, from kings of old, old to parishioners now, we are gloriously adept at forgetting whose house we are in. And how true and sad that is. We must always remember, this congregation is not Nate's congregation because I'm a preacher. And this congregation is not David and James's congregation because they are elders. This congregation is not your congregation or our congregation. This congregation is Christ's congregation. He is the king. And we must 
humble ourselves before Him. We must recognize that we have a work to do and we need to faithfully be doing the work of the kingdom. But the success will come from God. The glory belongs to God. Our job is to be humbly faithful. And this is going to lead into the next part because this is foundational. If we want to have contentment and peace, we must first be humble. But if we are, then we can move to what David says next. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So now David begins to speak about contentment. Now something to notice here. Contentment does not come naturally. At least it does not come naturally to adults. Notice what David says. He says, I have calmed, I have quieted my soul. He didn't happen upon a calm and quiet soul. He didn't find a calm and quiet soul. He calmed and quieted his soul. Here's one of the most difficult things about contentment. It is a choice that we make. And that just makes the sadness of it all the worse, doesn't it? Because so much of humanity is not content. Because most of humanity will not choose contentment. Now that doesn't mean that contentment is easy. It's not just a flip of a coin type of choice. It's not just a choice that, well, I'm going to be content and then everything just magically gets better. But it is a choice and it is an important choice. This idea of quietness, of stillness, of calmness is very important. Remember Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I am God. For all of our advancement, for all of our technology, for all of the time-saving devices and books that we can read and everything we have available to us, we are not a still or quiet generation. I would say stillness, calmness, quietness has probably never really defined the vast majority of humanity, and it certainly doesn't define Western culture in the 21st century. And so that makes us look, and this is for me, this is not me preaching to you, this is me just considering this psalm and what I need to recognize. And that is that a lack of stillness, a lack of quietness, an absence of calmness might actually indicate a lack of contentment. Why is the world so busy? Why do people chase more and more and more? Why are people so busy all the time? Because we're always desiring and chasing something more. And as much as many people say, I wish I was less busy, I wish I didn't have this going on, I wish, I wish, I wish, the truth is we just don't make the choice to be still and content with God. Now, I said contentment doesn't come naturally to adults, but herein we can learn a wonderful lesson from even the smallest of children. When David made that choice to humble himself and to be content with the Lord, 
he found a simplicity that was beautiful. He said, and he repeats it twice poetically, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Commentators debate, this is one of those things with Bible study where it can get so technical. Bible commentators debate whether this really refers to a weaned child or simply to the contentment of a child that has just finished nursing because uh, what's the picture of a weaned child that no longer nurses? I don't think that's really the point here. Whether it's speaking about a weaned child, whether it's speaking about a, a, a baby, an infant that has just finished nursing, the picture is a beautiful and, a, and an important one. It is a child that has been satisfied from the provision and protection of its mother. And thus David's picture is beautiful. Think about what that child is. That child is weak and thus completely dependent on the parent. Without a parent, and primarily without a mother, a child would simply die from starvation. It is absolutely dependent upon its mother. And likewise, we are completely and entirely dependent upon God. And if we think that we can find the nourishment for our soul from pleasure, from money, from worldliness, from accomplishment, from learning, from any of these other things, we are no better off than a child that has no food source. We will not find contentment from those things. We can only find contentment from God. But also when you, when you see that picture, a child that has just nursed, a child that's with its mother, have you ever thought about how satisfied that child is? And it really didn't get all that much. Didn't have a steak dinner. Didn't have a three-course meal. But that simple sustenance and being held in the arms of its mother brings that child a peace and a calmness that every one of us as adults envies and wishes we could have. And it didn't have all that much. Maybe that's one of our problems. We, we think that more and more whatever it is, will bring us peace. And we need to learn more of what Paul says. I have learned in any situation to be content. Think, how can you do that? Paul said, with food and clothing, let us be content. And this is a, the serious question for us. If all we have are God's provision and God's presence, is that enough? It should be. And when it is, then we can have a calm and a quiet soul. That doesn't mean that everything in life will be easy. That doesn't mean we won't have all sorts of responsibilities. That doesn't mean we won't face pain and hardship. But when we simply trust in God with a childlike dependence and faith, then we can have a calm and quiet soul. And this, by the way, is, is an idea that Jesus picks up this, this metaphor of child likeness. Remember in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, 
when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, the perspective here now changes from the personal. Everything in verse 2 and 1 have been I, they've been uh, first person. Now it shifts to a view towards the community. Having stated the conclusion that David has been able to come to of learning to walk humbly and contentedly with the Lord, it gives him a great, very short sermon that he can preach to others. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Now when you think about anxiety and fear, As far as I can tell, anxiety and fear and worry and stress always have to do with the future. Will my health hold up? Will I have enough money? Will this situation go the way I want it to go? What if, what if, what if? Stress and anxiety, how much do you... Do you stress about things from 20 years ago, a year ago? No. You stress about the future. And the reason for that is because it doesn't matter how arrogant we are, all of us in our heart know we don't control it. I can try and take measures to ensure my health is is as good as it can be. But you know, there are people who have been in tip-top shape that have developed some cancer in their very early years of life and no control over that. There are people that have done very wise, smart things with their money and some tragedy happens and they lose it all. There are things in this life, there are most of the things in this life we simply cannot control. And that causes us stress and anxiety and worry. And the more that we stress... Ironically, the greater the temptation is to try and make the future what we want it to be and to do what we think we need to do to make the future we want. Instead, we should simply place our hope and trust in the only one who does control the future, the Lord. Thus, we should humble ourselves to realize that we are not in control. He is. We should find contentment in Him and in His ways. Thus, we should faithfully and obediently and worshipfully simply serve God. I mentioned there's a connection here. I think this is really the answer to what is said in Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. This isn't just an answer. This isn't a three-step process to a calm and quiet life. It's an outline of how to look towards eternity each and every day. We need to faithfully wait on the Lord. Now that means that we obey Him, we serve Him, we do the things He calls us to do. But our life is a life that is looking to the Lord and his plans, and his promises.
So yes, Psalm 131 is very much a little psalm, but I hope you agree that it has a big message. After all, there's nothing little about humility or contentment or hope. These are big concepts that have very big impacts on our life. So it is short that we could spend the rest of our lives applying its principles. And as we march along through this life, as we make our pilgrimage, our ascent, you might say, towards heaven, towards the new Jerusalem, we would do well to remember and pray along with David, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. May we all seek a calm and quiet walk as we make our way to our eternal home.